What's up, everybody? Welcome to the What's Up Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we discuss what's up with the market, the economy, and any other worthwhile topics and discussions. My name is Kamzad Alkanadi, and joining me is my partner, Matthew Campbell. What's up, everybody? Today, we are discussing two newsletters that we combined together in the month of January 2020. The first is titled, What's Up Bull Market? How Much Longer Will You Run? And the second, what's up liquidity concerns, massive deficits, and sin. First, we're going to start with our 2020 outlook. We are currently late cycle. Valuations are high. Interest rates are low. The price of gold and silver are selling at near their highs with uh, gold at 1,578 per ounce and silver at 1781. The put-to-call ratios near their historic lows. Home builders are outperforming the NASDAQ with record new home starts. The federal deficit topped $1 trillion, 17% jump from the previous year. And we have experienced some black swan events. First, the tensions with Iran. And the second, the Wuhan coronavirus. But we are still in a strong bull market. Consumer confidence is high. GDP continues to meet expectations. Earnings are beating estimates, and the Feds are holding the current rates, and they anticipate inflation returning to target levels, as well as the labor markets remaining strong. They are doing everything they can to make sure investors feel safe to buy risky assets like stocks, and this is why we are in their continued expansion phase. Matthew, what are your thoughts of this market, and what risks do you see present? Well, first off, thanks for the market update. Uh, some of the things that are probably risky in the market are what you've mentioned. There's the virus that's spread in. The WHO stating the virus is a global health emergency. Right before we started this podcast, I got an alert from the Times saying that the U.S. put its highest level uh, travel warning uh, on travel to China. So obviously the tensions are high there and with this thing. Um, like growing in severity and with the lockdown that the Chinese government has on some of its larger cities, we're going to see probably China lose in productivity for the year. I mean, it's going on significantly like a month. If this continues to drag on, they might look at some significant growth reduction. Uh, And obviously China plays a big part in global productivity. So those might be some things that we see. Um, but you know, as you know, we kind of see the market end in green. So consumer confidence is still high. Um, even with impeachment going on and some of the other black swan events, like you talked about, uh, consumer confidence is still high and that's really what's key here. And, uh, I heard an interesting take on these kind of events yesterday too. We had at my school, a senior vice president from Morgan Stanley come in and he said that he actually he likes to see this kind of stuff going on in the news. Like when he sees like these risky things going on, that tells him that there's still room for growth in the market. He said he gets worried when we start seeing things like, Hey, the market's doing great. Everything's okay. Nothing to worry about. Then he says, that's kind of when you should worry. He's been doing it for 30 years and that was his take. That is very interesting. And we're recording this on January 30th. Uh, and today in the market was very, very volatile. We saw a plunge to close to 1%. But right when the World Health Organization released 
their statement regarding uh, the coronavirus being a global uh, health emergency. It's, uh, they're on high alert, and this means that uh, countries should be on high alert, issuing travel notices as well as travel restrictions. Uh, the market went up and uh, closed in the green today. So with the global health emergency being stated, as well as the impeachment hearings, as well as uh, some uncertainty in other global markets, we saw the irrational market closing in the green. And that just shocked me. And that shocked a lot of friends of mine as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. You know, we haven't really seen this kind of resilience in the market, at least in for any time that I can. It does create an exciting uh, investment environment for us who are still trying to learn uh, how to invest or who want to experience with options trading. With earnings coming out, we've seen a lot of uh, crazy, crazy companies reporting uh, profitable uh, quarters, but their stocks performing 10, 12, 15%. Uh, three notable ones, Tesla, we all know about Tesla. It's huge hype stuff. Yeah. Elon Musk, uh, uh, a renowned character uh, in the investing world as well as in the, the ordinary world. And their stock is currently trading around $115 billion. And he got a payday of around $2 billion to his net worth as well as a pay compensation performance of $300 million. So great day for him. And then we saw... Uh, Amazon in the after hours today up $200. And you stated before we started recording this podcast that Jeff Bezos's net worth increased by $13 billion, which is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine that. It was like $13 billion in just like a couple of minutes, like 15 minutes. I mean, that's just, that's crazy. I've been reading this Reddit thread called Wall Street Bets. And if you've never heard of it before, it's hilarious. And it's basically a bunch of generates. Uh, I don't know. I don't know who they are, or what they do. They're probably either college students like me or people who work in the industry of finance or who are traders. But hilarious threads of people talking about what they're betting on, what they're investing in, their, their options. And they go more technical and just saying, what their option is, like what the call price is, what the strike price is, uh, how many contracts they bought. And people actually take snapshots of their performance of either they lose $100,000 for that day or they're up like $800,000. So it's actually really interesting. And I've got some cool knowledge out of it too, learning how to trade options and seeing how people are performing for the day. It's pretty extraordinary. It's hilarious too. It's kind of R-rated too. So if we have any listeners who are below the age of 18, definitely don't listen to it or read it. Uh, but it's uh, very interesting. I'll have to check that out. It sounds interesting. I know in 2019, we have experienced uh, fires in California as well as hurricanes in the Caribbean and East Coast. Matt, do you see any uh, weather problems presenting any chaos in the markets this year? I mean, absolutely. You know how I feel about climate change. I think that it's going to be the single greatest uh, problem for our generation moving forward. And we've only seen things really get worse. I mean, just look at what's going on in Australia right now. You and I both live in California. 
so you know how the fires have been the recent years and how much damage they've had, how much it's impacted our lives. I do think climate change is going to be an issue going forward and it's going to lead to more of these disasters as well as more food shortages across the world as places heat up and can no longer bear crops. I think that's going to be a continued problem. And actually, I just saw recently that since 1993, there have been 212 weather disasters that have cost the United States alone at least a billion dollars adjusted for inflation. In total, that cost is $1.4 trillion, and they've killed more than 10,000 people. The average of that is 7.8 major disasters per year. That's pretty significant, especially when you consider the fact that prior in the prior years from that, 1980 to 1992, there was only an average of 3.2 per year. That's just an insane increase from 3.2 to 7.8 billion dollar disasters a year. I mean, I think we can attribute some of that to just development along coastal areas, but certainly not all of it. I mean, there's no doubt there's been more and more major disasters. So we can definitely see at least some impact from that this year going forward. And I definitely have mixed feelings about this. Uh, I feel a sense of fear knowing that um, it could cause damage to my future home or to my future life, either a, a hurricane or an earthquake or a fire, as well as I fear a sense of um, of calmness, knowing that my my immune system is good, and I know that with these drastic weather patterns, uh, this could cause sickness. And uh, you know me, I take a shitload of vitamins, so I feel like I'll be okay um, in the sense that my immune system is strong. And if more viruses or fevers present itself, I feel like I could battle through that. But definitely, I have a sense of uh, curiosity to, to see how this will affect people's lives because this affects all types of businesses. It affects the healthcare market because uh, weather will definitely affect people's health. It affects uh, agriculture, of course, because it will cause either droughts or floods or just destroying whatever they have pasteurized or harvested because of uh, natural disasters. It will affect trade um, and shipping and distribution because uh, who knows what will happen if the uh, sea levels rise or some places become too uh, desert-like so there's no water. So it's definitely interesting. And I definitely see why you have to start incorporating these factors into your investments. They're called ESG integration factors. You have to see which factors will present risk for these companies and every company will have some type of risk regarding uh, climate change or, or biodiversity loss or some type of weather disruption. So it's definitely something interesting to look forward to as well as something not to look forward to. And this is a great transition into uh, one of our newsletter sections uh, this month. So this one was titled Tobacco and Other Sin. And I don't know if you know this, but sin stocks have been the highest returning sector since the 1900s. Tobacco in the U.S. and alcohol in the U.K. 
And this is meaning that the tobacco industry in the U.S., Philip Morris, RJR Nabisco, uh, Altria, these companies have been performing so well since 1900 because they're so profitable. Their profit margins on tobacco leaves are so high that they've made so much money in the form of dividend for investors that they're considered the highest returning sector in the U.S. Wow. that I did not know that. That. That is impressive, I guess. But like you said, sin stocks, so it's unfortunate as well. Yeah, so that, that's why I mentioned it. You were talking about how you have uh, particular views uh, regarding sustainability and uh, climate change and global warming and, and that such. What are, your, what are your views towards sin? Would you, if you knew as an investor that it will return you uh, great profit, in the form of dividend or uh, appreciation in stock value. And if you knew as an investor that you don't have the views that these companies uh, embody, you don't believe in tobacco, you don't believe in alcohol, you don't believe in, in guns, but you know that if these stocks return well, then you could use that money towards more sustainable practices or more purposeful practices. What are your views on that? It's, it's two options. Either you say, no, I don't want to invest in it. I don't want to give this company my money because I don't believe in their values. Or two, uh, you do invest in the company knowing that they are wrong in their morals, but you say yes because you know that it will be profitable towards you as an investor and you can use that money towards better causes. You know, that's an interesting point that you pose both you and I, as well as our listeners, we're all young investors. So I think as young investors, this is something that we all need to address. We kind of need to set up our set of values, like what we're looking for in these companies, because, you know, it's more than just like a ticker that you add to your online portfolio. There's these companies, they this money that goes to them as little as our portfolios make up, it all kind of adds up and it all sends a signal. So I really think it's important that all like, starting off investors, anybody who invests really asks themselves this question. The way I feel about it is that for me personally, the things that the companies that I believe in, the companies that I don't, even if I can make a profit with a company like an oil company, for example, for me, I would not feel right investing in that in the short term, even if I was going to use that money in the long term, long term to more sustainable companies, because I think that a lot of these things have gone on for way too long and I wouldn't feel right profit profiting off them. And I think that it just, it's got to start right away. So to answer your question, I, I would not even in short term invest in any company that didn't fit my set of morals and what I wanted to my money to go towards. So there's, there's two perspectives that you have to uh, respect one, your own personal morals your own personal principles. Now, if you want to be an investor for yourself and you're investing your own money, you could follow those morals and those principles. But if you want to get into asset management, wealth management, and you have clientele that you're working for, you're in the service industry, so whatever they need, whatever is best for them, your fiduciary duty is to respect that. Would you be comfortable investing your client's money in those things if it's something that they want? Or would you 
open up your own investment firm that follows very strict sustainability and ESG investment factors? I mean, that would be the goal is if I could have my own firm or work for a firm that fit my values very well. And, you know, like you've said before, these type of like sustainability or like morally responsible, like stocks and funds are becoming more and more popular. So as you and I get into the workforce, that is going to be a real possibility. There are many companies now, funds that uh, either offer these options or focus on these options. And that's kind of where if I work in this sector, that's where I would want to be working. Because like you mentioned, otherwise you have a responsibility to your client. If they say, hey, you know, I want to buy this company or this company, and you might not believe in that. It's you're you're not you can't just say no, you know, because one you're going to get fired. Two, it's not your call. Like they're going to do it either way. It's their money. So uh, I think that when you look to where you're going to work, that's something you also need to be aware of. I would like to be able to choose to work somewhere that has the same values. But otherwise, if it comes down to it, I mean, did you have to do what the client wants? Yes. You know? uh, what are your kind of thoughts on that? I'd like to hear your thoughts. I say that the industry as a whole is progressing towards the more sustainable route where you see the older generations either dying off or um, giving their money to their kin and their kin having more green conscious uh, uh, beliefs. And they are the ones who want to invest more friendly and more environmentally uh, conscious. So I believe, yes, I need to be open-minded towards that. But I, as an investor and as someone who uh, values uh, the, the worth and the potential of money and, and values uh, characteristics that go along the lines of being a very successful money manager or hedge fund manager, I would say that I would have no problem investing in SIN. Uh, it's profitable. Doesn't matter um, if, if it does harm the environment. I feel like as an investor, you get to choose where you want to put that money. So me being very philanthropic and generous with my time and money, I would say that the money I do return from these companies who are doing sin, I could do good by donating it to either Chabad or uh, the giving spirit to help the homeless, or I could uh, give my time, my time to also work at these organizations. So I do believe that Asset managers, their their only objective is to make investors happy by making them return, by creating alpha, by trying to beat the market, or at least by trying to perform as well as the market. Yeah. That's the only way to do it. Like, here's here's a stat. Uh so since so since 2009, uh the profit margins of Philip Morris was eleven percent. And now, today, they're 26%. And sin stocks usually are profitable and perform better during slowdowns and downturns. So tobacco has been outperforming the S&P 500 in 
the up years and down years. So as as an investment manager, you have to think, okay, if I want to create some type of alpha, I need to invest in these things. You are absolutely right. But then also, on the other hand, like at some point, don't you think that this stuff, like it has to end? Like people have to move away of from course, it. Of course, of course. Of course, it's also up to like the pe- the consumers, the people who consume these products. But I think the companies and the investors also have a responsibility. I mean, if we let these things just continue to go on and on and on, like you and I or our children, they aren't going to have lives here. I mean, like you mentioned, you know, like your future house or your future family, like we live in California. Uh, there's been a few years now where basically there's been fires across the state and you know as we continue to uh burn oil burn coal yes i i totally support one one of my my goals as well is to work for a sustainable uh focused hedge fund or investment firm i I believe that's the future and i believe getting into it now and learning about the esg integration process will benefit me uh, really well in the future, but uh, you were saying how the future doesn't look bright for these companies. But even though originality is dead, innovation is not. And these tobacco companies are now uh, diversifying into either e-cigarettes like uh, Juul or this new thing uh, that they're coming out with, uh, Puff, or into cannabis. And just how you and I both share the same sentiment towards oil integration companies like Aramco. Uh, they are also diversifying their huge cash portfolios into other businesses like private companies or uh, sustainability. Some of them are even buying uh, solar plants or uh, uh, wind farms. So they are diversifying. So they started off as poor companies who only profit from sin and from killing society and now they're diversifying because they feel like yes our industry is dying and now in order to sustain profit and and help our market cap and please investors we have to diversify into sustainability so we do see these companies uh redeeming themselves yeah absolutely i mean chevron is a great example of that but uh at least at the current rate i mean they're still going to ride oil for as long as it's profitable and it can continue to be profitable for at least the foreseeable future. So there needs to be some kind of other push because otherwise they're, they're going to stick to where the profits are. And at this rate, it's unfortunately a little too late unless they really pick it up. I would also say that, in their press releases and in their quarterly filings, they don't disclose uh, their poor morals or their poor actions to society. They're very rosy about it. But what I don't agree with and what I find actually really interesting is the people who profit from a market downturn. So this week, uh, Monday and also Wednesday and a little bit today, Thursday, People were profiting from buying puts on the on the spy on spy. Spy is a uh, ETF slash index fund that tracks the S and P five hundred. 
they've been profiting on deaths from the coronavirus. I find that to be very interesting. What what are your what is your regards to this? Do you feel like it's appropriate to do that? Do you feel like these investors are just so cruel or cold that they're able to do this? Would you be able to do it? You know, it's it's a tough question. It kind of goes back to what we talked about a little earlier, but it's also like a catch twenty two. Like, are you damned if you do? You're damned if you don't. Because if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. You know, it's uh, it's I love the movie The Big Short, and at the end, Steve Carell's character he is on the phone and they're asking him if he should sell. He should sell. They're up something like a billion dollars, and he's waiting. He's waiting, and then you know they finally. They finally sell their, uh, they sell, they short the housing market for something like a billion dollars and they're able to celebrating, celebrating. And he is just like completely upset because he realizes the gravity of it. And yes. that same kind of situation, like it, a lot of times in the market, it comes down to every time you profit, somebody else is losing. And a lot of times it can also be, especially in like these oil companies or these sink companies, the people that are losing are losing more than just their portfolios. They're losing their lives. Uh, so it, yes, it's definitely, I'm not going to say what's right or wrong. Uh, and I haven't been in that position, so I don't know, but it's definitely at the very least something that investors should be aware of. You definitely have to be fearless and express no emotions uh, when you're, when you're investing and you want to be a day trader or a high frequency trader. Yeah. But moving on, uh, we have seen some black swan events in January of 2020 already. 2020 has started uh, a rough start. We've seen tensions with Iran as well as this virus and political concerns and uncertainty happening in the U.S. with uh, primary starting. So a way to hedge against all of this risk and this potential market downturn, you can invest in gold. Uh, Gold is a precious metal, something to make rings and jewelry out of, and it's a beautiful accessory. However, it is exponentially more important as an investing asset. There are a few ways to invest in gold. You can buy exchange-traded funds that track gold. You can invest in companies that mine gold. And you can buy physical gold like rings, change, bars. Uh, but Matthew, why why should you invest in gold? Um, why not real estate? Why not silver? Why should you invest in gold? Well, gold, I mean, I'm a big fan of real estate too. And silver also has its pros, but definitely gold is favorable because like you mentioned, uh, it's tangible. So you're definitely able to buy it. It's something that is not going to go away. You know, sometimes like these companies that are valued high or even like other assets, like it's it's there. You can hold it. You can have it. It's not just going to disappear on you. And mainly for that reason and for the fact that it's just a precious metal, make it a good investment. It's been around for a long time. It's got a good history. And especially in times of like turmoil like this, we see gold hold its value or increase in value. So those are the reasons why it's always good to have a little gold, or if you're worried about going the future, definitely gold is a safe way uh, to hedge your bets. I agree. It's a great uh, store of value. 
as well as it, um, the price of gold soars when inflation rises. So when the dollar is depreciating, because the dollar will always depreciate, uh, gold holds its value. Yeah. As well as it's a non-renewable resource. So yeah. it's rare uh, and very valuable. People love gold. Exactly. The limited amount means that it's not going to, there's no inflation for gold. You're not going to lose your buying power unless the price goes down. But generally speaking, it will go back up because there's a limited amount and it's a precious metal. So you're right. It's a great way to hedge against inflation as well. And uh, speaking of hedging against risk, one of the risks that are, is present in the uh, U.S. markets in 2020 are the liquidity concerns with how the Federal Reserve is trying to keep up the repo market and trying to keep up the credit market by injecting uh, close to half a trillion dollars into these markets to please investors and to keep the highs continuing its highs. Uh, and the Fed was quick to add as much as $99 billion a day in reaction to the amount of cash in the market. Uh, the borrowing costs have also uh, increased during that time. So when the Fed's injected the money to try to stabilize the short-term borrowing market, the interest rate spiked. And this caused concern of liquidity. And liquidity is one of the main things investors uh, look to get from their investments. It's, uh, it's factored into the market premium. So... What are your thoughts about the liquidity in the QE that we're facing right now? Yeah, so like the article I wrote uh, for our newsletter a couple of weeks back, uh, kind of the main point was whether or not there's all these financial analysts discussing if it is even QE or not, which I, I find very interesting because it's kind of the job of the Fed chair right now, Fed Chair Powell, to be very clear with the market and the fact that there's even like this huge discussion about something that's supposed to be really clear and straightforward kind of shows how he's failed to communicate the Fed's intentions specifically in this, but also that's kind of just been his history since he's taken the position, um, which, you know, is never good. You want investors, you want the banks, you want everybody to know like what the Fed's intentions are. It should not be a surprise. You shouldn't catch the market off guard. The Fed should be able to communicate clear and concisely their intentions so that the market isn't just shocked into something. That's definitely not what we want. And that's kind of what we see happening here because there's so much debate. You sent me an article like just yesterday, still going on with this debate a month later on whether or not these kind of, uh, these, the Fed giving money into the repo market is QE or not. Uh, I think it's important that they're doing it, whether it is QE or not, because um, liquidity in the market is very important. And if you don't keep this liquidity at the level it needs to be, if the market becomes illiquid, uh, we could see all sorts of turmoil in the market. So it's a lot of money going into there, but it's, it's necessary. So that's my. Now, do you think that the central bank, uh, will be able to sustain this practice for a long time by injecting billions of dollars every single month into this market so so yeah like i wrote too they're they're trying to get away with it the fed chair is working with the treasury secretary uh they're trying to find out ways to make 
this market more liquid so they don't have to continue to inject cash right into it. That's their long-term goal. They're not trying to do this long-term. Unfortunately, we don't have a great idea of what they're doing since, again, they're just not communicating with the public very well. But um, we also have to remember that the Fed still has uh, an unprecedented amount of money on their balance sheets. So they can continue to uh, sell off assets from their balance sheets and fund this liquidity for a very long time. Not that they want to, not that that's what they should do, but they do have that ability for the foreseeable future. So Now, speaking about this, uh, liquidity concerns and uh, black swan events that you have to uh, be careful about, even though you can't predict them and they just happen, you definitely have to have some type of preparation for them. Uh, this leads us to the term of the week, and it's money manager. A money manager is a person or financial firm that manages the securities and portfolios of an individual or institutional investor. Something that Matthew and I both want to uh, be in the future. Yep. And uh, now we want to also talk about one of the key events that happened uh, every year in January, and this is Davos. Uh, in Davos, Switzerland, they have a economic forum and as well as a huge conference for uh, CEOs, billionaires, politicians, presidents, prime ministers, who all go to this conference and speak about world problems and how they can solve these world problems. Matthew, uh, you did a lot of research on this uh, for the Davos uh, conference in 2020. What are your thoughts about it and what are the key takeaways? So the World Economic Forum in Davos, uh, it's a great way every year to kind of see where these influential figures are as far as like what they see the problem being at this time, kind of where what things that the world should be focusing on, like the financial system should be focusing on. It's always interesting to see that. And we talked a lot about climate change today. So go figure that it would have climate change was the main focus this year. Their theme was stakeholders for a cohesive and sustainable world. So a lot about what we talked about, stakeholders, um, specifically for a sustainable world. This is like what we were mentioning earlier. Like that was kind of the goal was to get these influential figures from all over the world, from all different types of backgrounds to kind of come together and say, hey, let's actually sit down and talk about this because we all need to do our part. So it was interesting to see that. Um, and many of the takeaways were also focused around that, obviously. So one of the big things we saw is oil companies and banks, many for the first time kind of come out and say, you know what, we, we need to do better. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information, but we do know that it was like that some of the oil companies met together behind closed doors. So again, we don't have a lot of information, but they met to talk about their direction for the future to be more sustainable um, and then possible oil reductions as well, which would obviously come to their profits, but that kind of might be where they're at. It might be what they need to do. So hopefully we get more information about this soon. I'm really kind of anxious to see where these companies are at. Uh, Cause I would love to see oil companies and banks specifically, cause there's just so much money behind these institutions, these organizations that if they really got on board, that could have a lot of weight and have a lot of positive like influence across the world. So that's one of the things. Uh, 
another kind of main point that people were talking about was this guy, Paul Tudor Jones. Um, he's a hedge funds manager and he kind of issued a warning, which I also thought was interesting. It also goes kind of how we were talking earlier about shareholders and investors and what companies they back. Um, he basically said that corporations need to move away from the shareholder focused model that Milton Freeman established kind of in the 1980s and move towards a more balanced approach that focuses on employees, customers, and the environment. He argued that shareholder prioritization strains government resources and undermines our political discourse. Um, and then as well, it just has negative effects on like overall society. So what I want to ask you is, there's no doubt that companies have become obsessed with pleasing their shareholders, but do you really see this being a possibility? Do you think boards are going to come together and say, like, okay, let's move away from what our shareholders want? Matthew, that's uh, a fundamental question that a lot of CEOs and public and private companies are trying to figure out if there's a balance between uh, shareholder value versus environmental value versus employee value versus governance value. And we all know that the purpose of uh, corporations is to please shareholders and to generate profit. We've always known that. That's the fundamentals of business and entrepreneurship is to make profit and give that free cash flow back to your investors, either your equity investors, which equity is more expensive, or your debt investors, which debt is cheaper. I do believe that if there is a way to give back to everyone in the most cost-effective way, that's the way that it should go, where you please shareholders and you also please your employers and your employees and your board of directors and you please the, the society that you live in and you help the environment and you don't have any negative footprints on this earth. That's what I believe. It's an interesting topic because it makes me think about uh, this book that I've been reading. It's um, about Jim Simmons and his uh, hedge fund. And uh, the way he runs his hedge fund is he has two. He has Medallion, uh, which is a fund that he only allows his employees to invest their own money in. So they manage around $5 billion and his employees are the only investors allowed to be in this fund. And this fund has been generating returns from 1960 of average around 60% each year. So these, these scientists and these data uh, analysts and these uh, financial analysts, they are all millionaires and some of them are billionaires because of this. He also has another fund that he allows private investors, endowments, and uh, pension funds to invest in. But this proves the point that, yes, there could be a balance, but to institute the balance successfully, it could be difficult. Well, that brings me to my next question then. Do you think that these companies who kind of try and find this balance are going to be at a disadvantage compared to other companies who just focus on profits? Yes and no. Yes, uh, it depends on what industry they're in, and if uh, these two competing industries are in the, these two competing companies are in the same industry, 
and one is focusing only on generating cash flow and the other is focusing on helping their employees out financially with their retirement or through benefits and also through giving back to the environment and making sure all their operations are environmentally friendly and also they take care of their uh, social needs as well. I believe that that's costly. You have to make sure that everything is up to compliance, that you pay everyone equally, that uh, you have your manufacturing and production and your distribution all not leaving a carbon footprint. That's expensive. So that means that this company who is more environmentally friendly and more socially conscious, they will have less net income than the one company focusing only on net income. But I do believe that the whole industry as a whole, finance, finance as a field of study is becoming more sustainable and focusing on ESG. Great. I think those are some really important points. So in addition to focus on the environment and climate change this year, uh, technology was also a main focal point, especially with concerns to personal data. Um, one of the points that was brought up is kind of what should happen with personal data rights as individuals. Do we get to have a larger say in what happens to our data? Um, that's something that was argued there. And it's kind of similar to what's been happening here in the U S Andrew Yang, one of the presidential candidates, one of his main issues is also like personal data rights. California just passed a law expanding consumers' personal data rights uh, versus corporations as well. So going forward, do you think uh, we should have more of a say over our personal data and how companies get to use it? Or do you think it's kind of a fair trade-off that these companies get to use our data in exchange for the free services that we get from them? Like think of Google and how we can use their services in exchange they kind of collect data. I believe that it's a very sensitive topic and it's also something uh, as precious as data, as your information, as your personal information, your social security number, your address, your name. Those are precious pieces of information. And with cybersecurity on the rise, uh, cybersecurity is one of the top five risks that the uh, World Economic Forum, they, they released uh, that these are the top five and cybersecurity is on there. It, it presents an issue where as consumers, we want to make sure that these companies are focusing all their resources on securing our data and making sure that they aren't breached. Uh, because a lot of companies have been breached in the past. Uh, like, uh, I believe Xerox, also, a couple credit agencies as well as Target uh, stealing credit card info. That's huge. So it's definitely something that these companies have to focus on. And that's why in 2019, as well as 2018, cybersecurity companies performed so well and uh, gained a lot of interest because they're in a field that's going to be very relevant and very important in the future. Great. Yeah, I think that I like how you turned that into kind of also an opportunity for investment. I think you're right. I think these cybersecurity 
companies, they've got a lot of room to grow as this market becomes more and more important as more and more of our data is online. I think that people pay more and more uh, to protect it. So yeah, great, great point. And to give to give our listeners uh, some insight on some companies that they should look at, uh, CrowdStrike Holdings is a great one, as well as Microsoft. They're a software, a huge software company that's also working in the space. Salesforce, EPAM Systems, IBM, Intel, NVIDIA, Palo Alto Networks, Five9, and my favorite, the Trade Desk. I remember I was sitting in uh, real estate law at DePaul University in Chicago, in the city, when the Trade Desk uh, went public. So this was in 2016. Uh, and they went public around $22 per share. And I remember this. I was sitting in class and I was reading the, the press releases and the 8Ks that came out regarding uh, how those, the starting price, the IPO price, as well as uh, the listing price and how many shares they uh, had outstanding. And now today, January 30th, 2020, uh, probably around four years later, their stock price is at $277. So huge return for them. Wow. Great. Is that, did you invest in them? I did not. No, I should have. Yeah. It's okay. We all got those stories, man. Hindsight bias only if there was no such thing. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, the final point that was brought up this year in Davos um, is regards to ending extreme poverty. The point was brought forward that it's estimated that an additional $350 billion a year could bring an end to extreme poverty worldwide. Um, So the question was kind of posed, should every billionaire donate something like 5% of his or her net worth each year towards this cause? Uh, The argument is that a mere 5% is probably less than than their money grows each year. So it wouldn't even affect their net worth. And for just 5% of each of their uh, donations, we could end extreme poverty. And this kind of echoes a recent sentiment we're also seeing back here in the US towards billionaires. It seems that more and more people are looking to the ultra rich to deal with these types of social issues. It's like, we've got a problem with this. Oh, let's tax the rich or we need to solve this. Let's tax the rich. So do you think it's fair that, uh, that we put these kind of social pressures on them and make it their responsibility? Um, or do you think it's unfair? I would say that if they have the resources and the capabilities to do it, and if they're willing, they're willing and able, yes. If they refuse to, if they have their own plans for their wealth with their own foundations and their own contributions and their own uh, uh, ways to, to help society grow and their legacy, I would say, and I don't think they should be forced to. That presents an inequality in itself where, yes, there's a huge inequality gap between the poor and the rich, and it's widening every single day because the rich are getting wealthier faster and greater than the poor are. But I don't, I don't think it's fair to force them because they got lucky and they worked harder and they were just capable of, of amassing so much wealth 
I just don't feel like a wealth tax would be appropriate. So, if and imagine Matthew, yep. just to just to continue with this, imagine if a wealth tax was implemented in the U.S. I would say that the black market would increase, money laundering would increase, crime would increase, uh, tax evasion would increase, uh, more billionaires would leave the U.S. That's taking out uh, some type of consumption, spending, investing out of the U.S. So if this was instituted in the U.S., I feel like it would backfire. That's an interesting point. I. I, f- I feel opposite. I mean, I don't think that it would be good all around, but I mean, just because there's an increase in tax, I don't think we're going to see a significant amount at all of billionaires leave the U.S. because the fact remains that this is where they want their money and this is where they want to live. Um, this is where the institutions are. This is where their corporations are. And I think even a slight wealth tax uh, is not going to deter that. Yes, absolutely. We'll see an increase in black market activities and money laundering, tax evasion for sure. But I think that um, that's going to be wiped out by just the increase in tax is going to account for that. Um, I think that would work out. I think that it's kind of based on just like a percentage amount. We're getting a little off topic, but based off like a percentage amount, I think that these wealthy people should pay closer to what like our parents pay. You know, the average billionaire pays it's between 12 and 18%. Obviously it's a lot more than our parents pay, but when I was doing taxes for the IRS, um, a lot of people who came in, they were in the 25, 30% bracket. They were paying almost double as much as of their yearly income of what they have than what these billionaires pay. That, that's just my little take on it. But I want to get a little bit back on topic. One more question about this before we move on. So if you had the option to donate 5% of your income each year, and that 5%, it's all you have to do every year, and that would end global poverty, would you do it? I think that's a very loaded question, um, but of course I would. All right. To To end poverty... I've traveled a lot. I've had the privilege to travel a lot with my family and with friends and by myself. And I've experienced different cultures. And I would say I am cultured. And I think that is a quality that I pride myself on because being cultured adds empathy to your life and it adds uh, a sense of willingness. And that's hard to come by nowadays with everybody connected to their iPhones and to social media and to the internet. But I've experienced poverty in many places, Costa Rica. I've experienced poverty in Israel. I've experienced poverty uh, traveling Europe and parts of Africa. And I would say that we are lucky to be in the lives that we are in. And Warren Buffett terms it the ovarian lottery. And you don't know where you're going to end up. You don't know if you're going to be able-bodied or infirm or or living in Afghanistan or in the U.S. or in China now, in Wuhan. You don't know. So I would say that, yes, of course, I would try my best, try my hardest. If I have the capability and will to donate 5% of my wealth every year to try to end poverty or try to end uh, water shortages in Africa or 
civil wars or genocide in Africa or in Yemen? 100% I would. What would you say? I would say the same thing. But like you said, too, it's a loaded question. There's a lot more at play than just that simple yes or no answer. But thank you for that sentiment. I said loaded question because if you say no, people would think you're an asshole. Like, oh, wow, you don't want to help society out with their poverty or with their drought issues. Wow, you're so capable and you have so much money and you flaunt it and you express it. And that's what people view. They, they judge uh, the rich based off of that, their character and their uh, not willingness uh, to donate 5% of their wealth or not agreeing to or supporting a wealth tax. Yeah, absolutely. Well, moving on, yeah, let's do our book review of the week. So you and I are actually reading the same book, but I, I just finished it today. Um, so you can kind of hear a little bit about it. We're reading Keeping at It uh, by Paul Volcker and Christine Harper. She's a senior editor at Bloomberg. She helped him out with the book. Um, it's basically about the life of the former Fed chair, Paul Volcker. It's in kind of part autobiography, part like monetary policy history, and then kind of part like last testament of one of the most pivotal central bankers over the last 100 years. In this book, he kind of gets to go through the history of things, but then also at the end, he really, really puts out his opinion of on modern policy and kind of where we should be looking uh, to going forward. So a little background on Paul Volcker. We did an article about him before, but there's so much more than just his time as Fed chair. So in addition to serving as the Fed chair under presidents Carter and then later Reagan and putting an end to the highest inflation rate since 1917, He's also been a pretty major part in almost every major fiscal event since the 1970s. Throughout the book, like the main thing that most people know about him is like him in fighting fighting inflation in the 1970s. But that's like five pages in the book. He like barely mentions it. The entire rest of the book is just everything else he's been a part of. He's held high-ranking high positions at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Chase Manhattan Bank, the Treasury Department, the UN, the Group of 30, the World Justice Project, and Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Team, just, just to name a few. That's not even near all of them. So the focus, I would say, of this book was focus on good government and sound money. Throughout the book, he attempts to make mention of the current administration uh, to kind of look at the government point. So he barely mentions it, though. You can tell he's trying to be respectable. He doesn't want to criticize the current administration, but when he brings up policies nowadays, it's it's clear that he doesn't agree with it. He doesn't think the U.S. is heading in the um, right direction, specifically with the rollback of regulations that the current administration has been very adamant about. Um, and I imagine that's also kind of disheartening for him to have witnessed uh, while he was alive, because he, he recently passed away uh, just like two months ago. But because he spent decades of his life advocating for certain restrictions, by by no means was he that kind of a guy. Too, he absolutely believed in like free market, but he knew that the market also needs some outward limits. You know, because like we saw in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, these markets are just made up of people, and these people are just searching for profits, and they're gonna do that if they can game the system. I mean, you and I have seen this happen all over the world. Uh, we've read about it. 
is that these people will try to game the system, get an unfair advantage, and that can mess things up for everybody else. So he's been very adamant that the market needs some restrictions. And I think he was a little disheartened to see a lot of the restrictions he was, he worked to make kind of get rolled back. Uh, so that was kind of one of the important parts of the book I took away. And basically what sums up the entire sentiment of the book is how he ends it. He ends the book by saying he went to talk to his mother one day. He was feeling a little, again, disheartened with kind of the current state of how things were at, or at his time. And he went to his mom and he said, where's our proud country heading? Why can't we get things done? And he said, she looked back at him and she said, the United States is the oldest and strongest democracy in the world. In 200 years, it has survived a lot. Now get back to work. And that kind of echoes the sentiment of the book because he really focuses on good government and he dedicated most of his life to public office. And he was kind of calling for a return to that. He wants kind of the next generation, like you and me, to give back, to go into public office, to make sure that like we're not just focusing on profits, but we're also kind of focusing on like the betterment of society. So I really enjoyed the book. I think you'll enjoy it too. Wow, Matthew, that sounds like an amazing book. And yes, I have started it. That I would recommend you reading as well and also to our listeners. It's called The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simmons Launched the Quant Revolution by Gregory Zuckerman. And by far, it's been one of my f- most favorite uh, finance books. And it's basically about how Jim Simmons, this billionaire, this hedge fund manager who operates his own quant fund, uh, started out in the industry developed his fund, developed uh, his trading systems and how he managed the fund and well, how he had successors and his retirement. So it's about his life and it's about his uh, career and it's an amazing book. And uh, his fund is one of the most highest performing funds in the US and they have assets under management around 35 billion. So definitely an interesting book. And I would highly recommend that to you. And on our next podcast, I'll be going into depth about the details of this book and the key takeaways. Great. I look forward to that. Well, thank you all for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed this week's What's Up podcast. And we would love your feedback as well as to hear what's up in your lives. Feel free to shoot us an email to the address in the podcast notes below. All right. Thanks, Camden. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.